You're going to love this. Just love it. People need to work longer hours and, and through their productivity, gain more income for their families. That's the only way we're going to get out of this rut that we're in. Ah, yes. Stuck in Brad's middle with you. But Brad Friedman's not here today on this Friday edition of the Bradcast. Instead, you got me, Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com, who got roped into guest hosting duty once again. Ah, but I kid, it's always a blast to be here on the Bradcast. Coming to you uh, worldwide on the interwebs. And heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast. Coast to coast around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, on iTunes, and on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, RadioOrNot.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik five days a week. Usually hosted by Brad Friedman of the Brad Blog, bradblog.com. But today, you got me, Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com. I got to tell you, you know, this week brought us the opening bell. Do they ring a bell at the Iowa State Fair? I don't know about you, but I'm so looking forward to seeing all the candidates get up on the soapbox um, and I'm, I'm just dying for a repeat performance from four years ago when this happened. We have to make sure that the promises we make in Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare are promises we can keep. And there are various ways of doing that. One is we could raise taxes on people. That's not the way. That, corporations. Co- corporations are people, my friend. We can raise taxes on. Of course they are. Everything corporations earn ultimately goes to people. So. Where do you think it goes? What, what? Whose pockets? Whose pockets? People's pockets. Okay, human beings, my friend. So number one, so number one, you can raise taxes. Okay, uh, that's enough. I, I know Mitt Romney's not running this time, but we've got seventeen to choose from. Bring them on. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. When I get older, losing my head many years from now. Will you still be sending me a valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine. 
If I'd been out till quarter to three, would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? Or, or, what about 65? Or, what about 80? Welcome back to the Bradcast, the Friday edition. I'm Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com, in for Brad today. The day that happens to be the 80th anniversary of Social Security. I think I found the right person to celebrate with. Joining me on the line now is Eric Kingston. He is not only a candidate for Congress from New York's 24th District up in Syracuse, but the reason I wanted to talk with Eric today is because today is the 80th anniversary of Social Security, and Eric Kingston is the co-founder of the group Social Security Works and also the co-author with his other co-founder of the book, Social Security Works, Why Social Security Isn't Going Broke and How Expanding It Will Help Us All. Uh, Eric Kingston, welcome to the broadcast. Oh, very happy to be here. Well, I- I'm go- glad to talk with you. I- we we met a few years ago at a at a, um, an event in Washington D.C. Uh, mm-hmm. We were introduced by Alex Lawson, who is the uh, executive director he's of Social our, Security he's Works. Fantastic. He's our fantastic executive director today. Yeah, he's he's a great guy too. And um, now, Social Security Works, you have taken a leave from the organization that you uh, you helped found uh, in order to run for Congress. You just launched your, your campaign, and you've been endorsed by the Blue America PAC, which my listeners know uh, is, is all I need because they really do the vetting. If, if Blue America endorses you, it means you are a true progressive and, and worthy of the backing of, you know, those of us who support other progressives in the, in the mold of Bernie Sanders. Is that a good description? I think that's fair, and I'm also very honored by it. Howie's been terrific, Howie Klein. Yes. And uh, it's been great to get to know him through this. Yeah, no, Howie's great. And uh, I go back with Howie to our both of our music days in Los Angeles. So, And then we've uh, you know both wound up dealing with, with politics because, you know, it's only the world at stake here. Um, Eric, before we get into your campaign, and I do want to find out about it, I do want to talk a bit about Social Security. Again, uh, today is the 80th anniversary of Social Security. And yet, if we listen to... Oh, some of um, the candidates perhaps running for president, um, uh, others running uh, for uh, for congressional races, even those in Congress from uh, Paul Ryan um, on down. They're telling us that Social Security is going broke, that we can't afford it. It's an entitlement used as a pejorative um, and that, you know, it's not sustainable. Now, Eric Kingston is the founder, co-founder and co-director of, of or, or the co-founder. Uh, I'll add it that, uh, of Social Security Works, this is this has been your area of expertise. So what is the truth about Social Security? Well, first of all, you got to consider the source. These are the same folks who in 2005 were dying to privatize Social Security, which would have been great come 2007 and eight when the economy collapsed. And they're the same folks who are trying to do, still do that or other things like that today. Let me back up a second. We have a system, the Social Security system, that works and works well. It was built by generations of Americans working hard, concerned to provide basic protection, insurance against loss of income in retirement or if loss if we die and leave our children or loss if we're disabled with young children or just for ourselves. So 
is this a system designed to provide that kind of basic protection against risks we all face? When you're young, we don't think about it, but we, can, we estimate that by 20% of people who are 20 today are going to be disabled by the time they're 67. That's not a happy thought, but that's the estimate of the Social Security Administration. And so we have this system. It's stood up through wars, through depressions. No, during the Great Recession we had in 2007 and 8 and beyond, we saw people lose homes. We saw people lose savings in their homes, personal savings. We saw pension contributions decline from 401ks. We saw pensions uh, really uh, shift dramatically in terms of the protection they provide to working Americans. The one thing we didn't see is anyone not get their Social Security. It worked flawlessly through that whole period. This is a system as fundamental to our lives as the highway system is, or in some ways the air we breathe. We assume it. We don't think about it really. Our highway system, President Eisenhower's uh, really great legacy to this country, one of his great legacies. The system is there. We use it. Occasionally there's a bump in the road, and we don't go running around saying, oh, my God, the highway system's got a bump. Let's rip it up, and I uh, will go back to dirt roads. Well, the folks who want to, with Social Security, what they do is they say, oh, gee, you know, there's, there's a bump in the road. The whole system's falling apart. We've got to get rid of it, and let's set up a, a private account or something. Right, right. Yet, yet that is what they have been proposing to do with Social Security, certainly in the recent past. But I know I know that the, the fear tactics surrounding Social Security have been going on, have been a, a tool of the right for almost as long as Social Security has been in existence, actually, right? For Even longer. For as long, uh-huh. and, and in fact longer. The Alf Landon, who ran against President Roosevelt in 1965, he called Social Security, 1935, he called Social Security a flaw on the working, a flawed and also uh, basically jipping the working man, a fraud on the working man. He also used terms similar to what George Bush does uh, a 60 years later, 70 years later. He talked, about so- he talked about Social Security as being worthless IOUs. Nothing was in there but IOUs. That's been an ongoing uh, trumpet beat by those who want to pull apart the system. Right. The latest one has been, oh, it's a great system, but it's not sustainable mm-hmm. in the future. So we've got to just make a little, few little tweaks, like raise the retirement age of young people whose retirement age has, always been, has already been raised to 67, cutting their benefits already by about 15%. So this is this is an ongoing drumbeat. The reality is it's a system that's conservatively financed. It's self-sustaining through payroll contributions, through income from the $2.8 trillion trust fund that exists, produces income of about $120 million, I think, this past year of interest payments. It's... It has some dedicated. It has dedicated sources of revenue. It does. You know, it. The main problem with Social Security today is that it does. It's not large enough. It doesn't hmm. do enough. Mm-hmm. 
Right, and that's why people like uh, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, on the Senate side and Elizabeth Warren and Sherrod Brown and others and Alan Grayson and the the progressives are proposing uh, not only, you know, strengthening Social Security, but expanding it. Absolutely. It takes a little imagination to move away from the rhetoric that surrounded Social Security forever. The reality is the we have people in their 50s, in their 40s, especially in their 50s, who are facing terribly difficult circumstances. We have a national retirement income crisis. Yes. Two-thirds of our working Americans, working Americans, not retirees, two-thirds will not be able to maintain their standard of living, even if they work to 67. So obviously we have this absolute crisis for individuals, and we have to do something about it. Meanwhile, Congress has been talking about cutting Social Security at times. That's not the way to go. Uh, the, the only way to address in a meaningful way the retirement income security crisis is to expand Social Security. We have families, and the politicians talk a huge story about how, talk a lot about how wonderful the family is and how important it is. But the United States is only one of three nations in the world the other two being Papua New Guinea and Suriname, <laughs> only one of three nations that doesn't have paid maternity leave. Right. It's outrageous. It, it, we, it, it is. It, it's completely outrageous. And, and I, I also want to get back to uh, Eric Kingston is with us. Again, the, um, uh, the co-founder of Social Security Works and author, co-author of the book of the same name, um, on this, the 80th anniversary of Social Security. I, a couple of things I do want to point out, though. You know, we mentioned, of course, George Bush, most famously in his last, uh, you know, uh, year in office, really tried. He traveled the country trying to sell his idea of privatizing Social Security, giving everyone their own personal retirement account. And can you imagine what would have happened if his plan had been accepted, If and, and it was widely rejected, roundly uh, rejected, but, but if it went the other way, and people then pulled their money out of Social Security-managed investments and, and invested it themselves in the stock market, what would have happened in um, uh, the end of August or beginning of September 2008 when everything crashed? I think I think we know the answer. Right, it's a rhetorical exactly. question. Yes, it would it have is. been horrible. It would have been. It horrible. wouldn't have been so bad. It wouldn't have been so bad for Wall Street, who would be managing it, because well, of course, because they, they could make pull money. out nice large fees. Sure. And this is something a lot of people don't know. When I ask people, how much do you think is spent on administering yeah. Social Security? What percent? People say thirty percent, forty percent, twenty percent, ten percent. The reality is, it's less than one percent. Wow. That's why Wall Street would like to get a hold of it. Well, of course, and, 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 and there's the correlation, too, between Medicare, where Medicare uh, administrative costs are somewhere, I think, around 3%, mm -hmm. and the Affordable mm -hmm. Care Act had to legislate to the for-profit insurance industry that you must cap your administrative costs at 20%. Do you know how much right. money, uh, another rhetorical, but just imagine how much money is added on to our monthly premiums because of that 20% administrative overhead. Oh, and and that that's yeah I I've yet to understand why we need private insurers yeah, in the healthcare system, right, but 
anyway, that's that's a different story. But right. you know, they, they the, are related. The right likes to say you don't want government Obamacare between you and your doctor. Well, the reality is what you've got is insurance companies exactly. who are shaving twenty percent off the top between you and your doctor, and they're giving you no value. Right. They're, I have yet to figure out what I get for having insurance company between me and my doc and my nurses. No, you get you get you get a, a larger premium, uh, something get, more yeah. expensive to keep up with. But and, back and to a lot of trouble. A it's lot. Oh Sor- my god. It's called Soros in my tribe. <laughs> yes, in mine as well. Uh, Eric Kingston but, is but with me, us. Yes. Let me back up because yep. this is a historic day. We had when you go back to the 1930s, our economy was crushed. One historian talks about it as being crushed like a tin can in a vice grip, in a vice. We had the imagination back then somehow to pass this act. And the result is we transformed old age in this country right up until today. It's not perfect, but we've provided protection for families who lose children, not who lose, who lose parents. Mm-hmm. You know, we've done an extraordinary thing. We had the imagination, when you go back to the 30s, to level the playing field between labor and business. And the result was we had the growth of unions and we had a middle class that grew out of the union movement. We had an unparalleled burst of productivity in the 1950s. So you, you go back and you think, you know, and again, you go back there. They had the vision and the willingness to regulate the banks. And it's when we let go of the regulation that the banks go when uh, when irresponsible again, and we end up with the Great Recession. This is we expanded social, we created Social Security in the 30s, 1935. We expanded it over time, 1950. We did it again in 1956. We had disability benefits. The economy was much poorer. The income, the, the national income was much lower than it is today on a per capita basis. We expanded again in the mid-1960s with Medicare and Medicaid. Once again, we had the vision and the moral imagination to do this. And even with Richard Nixon, there's an expansion by putting in cost of living adjustments. Mm-hmm. So at a time at times when our nation was far less well off than it is today, we expanded it. Both my colleague Nancy Altman, who wrote the book with me and co-founded Social Security Works, and I would say, it's now time to do it again. It's time to put in paid family leave within the system mm. and sick leave. It's time to provide an increase in benefits. It's time to improve the protections that uh, caregivers have who leave work to care for family members, but then also find their social security benefits reduced and that we can afford it. We're not a poor nation. We feel poor because all of the income growth in the last 30 years has gone to the top 10%, mostly the 1% and especially the 0.1%. And, there's, and with that has come tremendous political power exercised by the 0.1% to change our laws, to create, to create an economic environment and a political environment where it's very hard to do things for the average person. Where, so we now have men and women working long and hard, harder than ever, in a, in a society that is richer than ever, 
but they're not getting their fair share and they're not feeling secure because they aren't secure. Right. Yeah, you know, and 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 a, a fact that I keep having to point out is that the United States of America is the wealthiest nation on the planet. That includes all those oil rich uh, Arab mm-hmm. nations. We have more money than they do. It's just we're constantly told, oh, we can't afford. We can't afford Social Security. We can't afford food stamps, but uh, we can afford to spend trillions yeah. and trillions of dollars on yeah. weapons, right? I mean, and yeah. we're told government, it's government's fault. The fact is, I mean, of course, we want efficient and good government, and government's not per- perfect, but government is all of us doing together what mm-hmm. we can't do by ourselves. That's right. But the one, those who don't want to pay their fair share, uh, the banks, the corporations that go offshore to avoid paying their income taxes, the companies that you know, operate on, the, on a two-year or one-year bottom line focus where they lay off, they lay off employees in order to increase the bottom line and share it with their shareholders, all of this is operating against the well-being of our society. And, and, that's, and so we have people, so we, they, these folks who seem to like to blame government, we're, government is the problem, we were told by Ronald yeah. Reagan. In many ways, it begins with Ronald Reagan, and it just gets worse. And Alec, you mentioned our friend Alex. Mm-hmm. Alex uses an example of you go to play poker and you go sit down at a poker table and you know, there's seven or eight people there and there's a huge pot in the middle. And this big guy comes in, sits down at the table, reaches over and takes all but a few dollars out of the pot. And then he turns to the other people and he says, watch out. Those other people at the table want to take what's in the pot. What's left. <laughs> right. You know, and that's what, I mean, really, we've got people uh, just pointing fingers at each other, pointing fingers at government. We have older people who've pointed fingers at the Affordable Care Act that took money out of Medicare, not acknowledging that the system expanded protections, expanded the life of the Medicare system, and that the Republican plan for Medicare was to take even more money out of it and not to, and not use it at all to expand the life of the trust funds. So we have this level of misunderstanding, a level of, well, misdirection and sometimes lies that come out to uh, undermine the confidence of people. And that's what's happened with Social Security. Well, it, it, it has. And of course, we've been told, again, the same things we've been saying that, well, we can't afford it. It's unsustainable. Yet um, we know, we think back to the 2000 election, Eric. I remember so distinctly Al Gore being mocked mercilessly for saying, you put Social Security in a lockbox. Social mm-hmm. Security doesn't add a dime to the deficit, except when the government keeps borrowing against it. That's why uh, those who are pointing at it, and tell me if I'm wrong here, because uh, I could be, um, they're saying, well, you know, Social Security is going broke. Well, is that because they keep robbing from it? No, it isn't. I mean, that's where I'll, I'll say it this way. Okay. It's because they want to make talking points to make ah, it seem like it's going yes, broke. It's the same it thing Alf, Alf Landon said and that President George W. Bush said, that they're, they're worthless IOUs. The IOUs that Social Security holds, $2.8 trillion in government, essentially government bonds, the safest investment in the world. It's where China goes. It's where 
the European nations go if they want safe harbor for their money. They mm-hmm. buy U.S. bonds. Right. That's what the trust fund holds. The trust fund receives interest on those bonds about, I think, again, I think it was roughly $129 million last year in interest. And that that interest goes right back into the system. So actually, oh, I was mistaken. I'm just looking, and I think it was... 93, it's going to be $93 billion this year, okay? Wow. Mm-hmm. So it goes in, it's building up the trust fund, and eventually it'll wear down. It's not being robbed, it's being borrowed from, and it's being paid back. Okay. Where it is being robbed is, where it will be robbed is, if the arguments of those who want to cut Social Security are accepted, Basically, they want to cut Social Security, a lot of them, because they don't want to pay back the bonds. Then it would be robbed. It's the American people's savings. The bonds are there. They're as good as any bond that you might have for your kids or anything. But one of the reasons that there are financial interests lobbying to uh, cut Social Security is they don't want to have to pay back all the bonds. And then, you know, so if we cut Social Security, we are robbing the system. Right. Now, now it's not only Republicans um, who who have attempted to cut Social Security, because even our current president, President Obama, mm-hmm. uh, we, we can never forget the terms grand bargain. And the grand bargain that he was hell-bent on cutting with the Republicans included a change to the cost of living adjustments for Social Security. Um, and Instead of CPI, I guess, that we have now, or uh, mm-hmm. CPIE, if I have that right, that some progressives were Well, proposing? it would have been, the, yeah, right? it, instead of that, either one. Right. The president that, wanted to do something called change CPI, which would right. mean a cut in benefits, right? Right. And that's a simple way to understand it in the correct way. It's, right. You spell change CPI, C-U-T. But what's difficult is... You know, we talked about George Bush, mm-hmm. and after George Bush's privatization, nobody's so nobody's really talking about privatization. It's out in the wings, and the Republicans, especially, would like it, but nobody's talking about it. No, instead, right. we we've created this notion of a fiscal crisis. In the midst of the deep recession, we've built a set of arguments, especially on the right, but also in the center that we have to cut long-term spending and short, even short-term spending. Uh, we have to cut, pr- produce huge cuts to so-called balance the budget in the name of austerity, mm. which was used as a rationale really to start build a case for cutting Social Security and build a case for cutting Medicare. The cuts that were proposed, and I think by the, well, I know but they were proposed significantly by the Republican side, but they also came from the Democratic side. And the president, in what was, I think, a foolish mistake, in, with due respect to a thoughtful man, but the president offered up a cut in Social Security yeah. in order to entice the grand bargain, as well as an increase in the Medicare age of eligibility. Oh, it's, you know, it's, I, I'm sorry. That, it's nuts. It's nuts. So, so Eric you know, Kingston. It's nuts also when you realize that really half of older people today are either poor, although not most, most are not poor, or at financial risk. Right. Easily at financial risk. The top... 25% of older households have $50,000 and above. Even some of them are at risk if 
they lose a spouse, if they have health care, or if they lose a job. Yeah. The top 25% of elder households are often people who are still working. Hmm. There is a crisis. And, and in fact, the 2008 meltdown hurt so many of us. Look, I'm right there. I'm 55. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, in, the, in the past few years, I had to dip into my, my 401k. It's gone. So like many mm-hmm. in my age group, we have no savings. Um, well, and that's right it, it's a it's a matter of what this this economic meltdown that is still reverberating with us that many of us haven't recovered from no. and plus we have this extraordinary student debt yeah our young people yep. are coming out with a trillion plus dollars in debt now and and families are taking on some of that too of course by mortgaging their homes mm-hmm. and so it's We've been putting more people to work longer and longer, more hours, less secure, and they're coming out with more debt. So, and it's it's difficult. I mean, there are some good things here to be said, which is it's really up to us. We can afford this. There are things that can be done. We can ask millionaires and billionaires to pay the same Social Security uh, contribution rate as everyone else. Right now, you don't pay Social Security above one hundred and eighteen thousand. Mm-hmm. $500. We could count more income. We could scrap the cap. We could count interest earnings as part of what we taxed, which really is the in, the major source of income of the 0.1 and the 1%. We could also uh, ask, uh, we could also have a very slow increase in the payroll contribution rate over 20 years, that would amount to no more than 50 cents a week per year additional cost. People would hardly feel it because the economy would be growing too, we would expect. There are many things we could do instead of cutting. And if we did just those two things, we could expand benefits to include maternity, paternity, uh, family leave, and sick leave. We could expand benefits to have another $100 a month or so Mm in people's pockets through Social Security. And the American people asked in polls whether they would like to see cuts or are they willing to even pay a little more to see expansions. They're, by and large, they're saying they'd like to pay more. This system is not just about dollars and cents. This is about the kind of society we are and want to be. It's based on core American values. Some of us would say religious values, the idea that we have a responsibility to care for our parents, for our children, Mm -hmm. for our families and neighbors, and for ourselves. We have a responsibility to work hard, and if we work hard, we ought to get something back. And So it's a societal, it's part of what makes, uh, contributes to civilization. It's change the nature of life. People don't worry about the poorhouse anymore. They worry about other things, though. And, but So there, there's that piece to it that's important to understand, and it's important to understand that it's radically supported across every political group. Hmm. You can ask conservative Republicans or liberal Democrats, and you get the same number almost, a little different. You get about 80% of the liberal Democrats or 82% saying don't cut Social Security in any grand bargain or anything. And you get about 72% of the conservative Republicans. doesn't matter. Americans don't have confidence, especially younger ones, that it will be there. They've, they've been 
had a propaganda campaign running forever, and it's taken, and yet even young Americans believe the system ought to be expanded. Yeah. But they, they are fearful that it's, most of them don't believe it'll be there, and yet they understand they've got parents and grandparents who are not living high on the hog, and they see the advantage of maintaining it. I think they'll find, as I found, and you will find, that the system will be there. When I was uh, younger in 1983, I was reading how you know those seniors are stealing from young people, and the system isn't going to be there for people who are the young bait for baby boomers. It won't be there. Well, now the storyline is those baby boomers are stealing from those young people. Right. Well, the truth is, it's a system we're all part of, and it's worked very well, and there's every reason to think it'll work well for the next 80 years. But we also have to get out and uh, let our representatives know that we won't put up with cuts to the program, that right. we need to be thinking about improving it. And, and and we need to elect people who make this a priority, which brings us, Eric Kingston, to your campaign. You're in New York's 24th district up around the, the Syracuse, New York area. Uh, in, in a piece that Howie Klein has up at, at Crooks and Liars, he says that this is the bluest district in the entire country represented by a Republican. And of course, Howie and I have talked many times on my program about the problems with the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, that for some reason they seem to only want the conservadems or however we want to describe them, uh, to run. You're running in that district. Are you going up against an incumbent? In the, in the general election, there is uh, an incumbent. Well, firstly, this district has flipped from Democrat to Republican or Republican to Democrat every election since 2006. Presidential years are good years for Democrats. Midterm election years are good years for Republicans. It's considered one of the 10 top swing districts in the country. There is a smart, capable, and I will say not a bad guy, who is the Republican, who's occupying occupying the congressional seat right now. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with his politics, but he's... He's being given. He's taking votes occasionally, taking votes with Democrats. Although, when the chips down, he's always going to vote with the Speaker. But he'll be formidable, and there'll be a lot of Republican support coming in. On the Democratic side, I'm the only announced candidate. I can't say that the Triple C will never support me, but I, I do know the general pattern on the Triple C is they want people to come in with a lot of money. Yeah. for one, yep. and self-finance if at all possible. And this is because our, our you know, I'm not even going to overly blame them for that except to say, you know, it's true of both parties. It's especially true of the Republicans that money drives everything, but money also drives the Democratic Party too. And money, as Jimmy Carter just said, is ruining our democracy, the kind of money in, in politics. It's turning us into an oligarchy was his words. Mm-hmm. And so I'm likely to have a primary, but I'm running very clearly as a strong progressive voice in this district. And I believe strongly that you don't win the seat back by feigning to the center. I, first of all, I'm not a centrist. Mm-hmm. I started off in, like you know, many of us, my political sense was honed during the civil rights movement. 
I learned a tremendous amount. I played a very small role, but it was very important to me in my years that I was involved. And and that's that's where I come from, and that's where I stay. I'm a professor at Syracuse University. I've taught issues. I've taught public policy and do a lot of work on aging and what generations owe each other and the Social Security program, obviously. But I'm going to run as a very clear voice that says uh, things are out of balance, that uh, and truthfully, I'm angry. I'm also very sad. The disrespect we have for regular people in our society, the willingness of Republicans and even Democrats to talk about Social Security in a pejorative term as an entitlement, as if people didn't pay for it and aren't deserving of it, and as if people shouldn't take it with dignity. That's wrong. That the throwing away of human life, meaning putting young people in the jails and locking and ruining their lives for relatively uh, minor mistakes or Mm -hmm. significant mistakes, but not something you ruin a life for. Our jail system is a disgrace. 17% of the people in our prisons and jails have severe mental illness. They become our mental. So you have that. You have the disrespect of corporations we talked about going offshore, not paying their fair share. Our disrespect to the environment uh, which, you know, again, we have regulation, but there's tremendous corporate interest pushing to not uh, enforce regulation or to repeal regulations that are critical if we're going to maintain a decent environment for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So all of the above and the dramatically inequitable distributions of income and wealth and power in our society have to be challenged. They're all connected. I'll focus a lot on Social Security and on student debt, but all of these issues come into it, and I'll be running as a clear voice on that, and we'll see what happens. I think I'm going to win. I think he will, too. EricKingson.com is not even live yet. It should go live in the next couple of weeks. Stay tuned. I think we'll hear a lot more from him. And happy 80th birthday, Social Security. Well, all due respect to Randy Newman, but it's money that matters everywhere in the world. Uh, and and we have a weird financial relationship with China, don't you know? I'm Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com, in for Brad Friedman on the Bradcast today. And I reached out to my friend Dave Johnson to find out what is going on with the currency in China. You know, you and I talked many, many times over the the course of the run-up to the vote on Fast Track Authority. We talked a lot about Trans-Pacific Partnership. And one term that I heard from you over and over again throughout those conversations was currency manipulation. Currency oh, yeah. manipulation. And uh, now we're looking at China and seeing, like, day after day, they keep devaluating their currency, per- throwing the world financial markets into an uproar. Um, is this currency manipulation? Well, it's it's not so clear. It, it might be a backlash on currency manipulation. It's just not clear. Let, let me explain that, okay? okay. China, China manipulated their currency. 
they just did things the uh, uh, background. Currency manipulation is when you buy something from in the if in the world markets and you want to buy something from China, you want to go, you want to go fly to England, whatever. Okay, when you fly to England, you find out that a pound is like a dollar and a half or a dollar fifty. And what that means is that if you want to get something that costs a dollar here, and you take your money over there, you suddenly find yourself spending a dollar and a half to buy something in England, okay? Uh The same thing costs a dollar and a half because of currency differences. Uh, Because a pound, something might cost a pound in England, and here it might cost a dollar. You take your money, you buy a pound, to buy something that it has cost you a dollar and a half, you find out, okay? Mm-hmm. Same thing's true for uh, things made there that you might want to buy and bring here, or to China that you might want to buy and bring here. Um, you, you, like, you find out that things, some things made in Mexico are really inexpensive, you right, know? Right, right. You, you, can, you can go to Mexico and go into a restaurant and get a really good meal sometimes for, you know, two bucks. So you get the idea. Well, yeah. you can also go to Mexico and buy something made by someone in Mexico for two bucks. That's really nice. That that here, you know, it might cost twenty bucks or something. So you get the idea of what currency differences can mean. So China had been playing a game of manipulating their currency to keep it really low. Now, now here's what happens: if if a country is doing really well, everybody wants to buy stuff from them, the more they buy, that means you got to change your money over to their currency. So if you want to buy a bunch of stuff from there, you got to keep changing your money over. Well, what that means is there becomes a demand. People want to buy their currency, so there's a demand. So if there's a demand, the price of their currency will go up, naturally. Uh, if you're following, you know, market kind of mm-hmm. normal back and forth flows, the price of their currency starts to rise. But that makes, after a while, the stuff made there cost more. And after a while, it balances out according to the level of how the economy is doing. So if their economy is growing, everybody wants to get something there or go there or whatever, they buy more of their currency. So the price of the currency goes up, things cost more, they start to sell less. China had been playing a game of manipulating the value of their currency, government would do various things to make that value of the currency stay really low, even though the economy is growing, what, it's, it's actually slowed now to 7% growth a year. Uh, they have, you know, this massive exporting. You'd think that people would be trying to buy all the yuan, the China currency that they could, to uh, buy the stuff that China makes that we bring here, but, but it was staying cheap. They were manipulating the currency to keep getting all that manufacturing business. Okay. Nobody, but their their economy was growing and booming, and yet everything was still so cheap. So, so they were doing that in order to seize that business from other countries. And it wasn't a game of growing people's economies. It was a game of stealing the business, the manufacturing, the 5 million manufacturing jobs they got from the U.S., for example. Try to buy something not made in China in a store, and you'll see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, we didn't respond. We didn't say, oh, no, you can't do that, so we're going to put a tariff on this, or things like that. China is 
doing things that are good for China. Great. I'm, I'm not going to fault China when I say that they're manipulating their currency. I'm going to fault the people who didn't do something about it. Uh-huh. And that's us. Yeah. Because, because when something's cheap, you go to China, get it made, you lay off your people here, you save a bunch of money. If you own a factory, you save a bunch of money, put that money in your pocket. Okay, so they were, they're the ones who, as we know, have all this influence over our government. And so they were making a, a boatload. I was going to say another word. I'm used to, you know, being on you can over say, the air. You can say shitload. They were making a shitload of money by taking advantage of China's rigging the rules like right, that. Right, Because they were rigging the rules and, and making money for them, too. And we were all seeing our wages drop and unemployment and all that. Mm-hmm. But Paid off handsomely for them. Okay, so I'm, I'm rambling on. So China had been playing this massive game of manipulating their currency and a bunch of other stuff. We had not been responding. Well, they had grown and grown and grown. Well, just recently, they started having some economic troubles as a result of their manipulating things to keep things going a certain way for certain people and not other people in their country. They, their economy was growing and growing and booming and booming, and they should have gotten much higher. But that um, awesome growth started slowing a couple years ago as the consequences of that started hitting them, and they started slowing down. Well, here they are. They, they, they had pegged their currency to the dollar to keep the U.S. business coming, and the dollar got stronger and stronger. And so it's not known roughly where their currency should really be. But what they did was they, and I know this is going on and on and on. I know That's it. okay, but I, it's, it's complicated. It's complicated. Yeah. It's complicated, but it's not. So <laughs> it's the same, but different. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. All right. So, so they've been manipulating it. That threw everything out of balance. The U.S. didn't respond Nobody really knows where things should be. And then three days ago, they said, all right, we're slowing. We're going to grab more export business. We're going to try to grab even more factories from around the world, especially the U.S. And they suddenly dropped their currency. Now, here's where it's confusing. They, they allowed their currency to drop. The market traders saw this sudden opening and immediately uh, – lowered the value of their currency 2%. China usually manipulates it so it won't move. Uh, they opened it up enough to drop 2%, and it dropped 2%. Okay. And the, the stock markets around the world went, oh, my God, what's going yeah. on? What's going on? Right. And, and then they did it again the next day. Tuesday they did it. Or when's Tuesday they did it again, Tuesday night. Well, they did it again last night. So now they're down somewhere between 4 and 6% already in, in three days. Four to, suddenly things made in China are 4 to 6% cheaper than they were. And everybody's saying, wait, is this going to continue? Because some people are saying that, that China feels that they've got to get a 10% drop. Well, nothing like this has ever happened. Nobody knows what's going to happen and what they're going to do. Nobody knows if this is responding to market forces, if their currency should have been 10 points lower. Obviously, with the amount of exports they have, their currency shouldn't be low. But... So that's what's going on. Nobody knows what's going on is what's going on. Nobody know, And it, it might mean that China knows something about their economy they haven't been revealing, that it's in 
you know, they, they just a few weeks ago they had this huge stock market drop, and then the government stepped in and just started buying stock itself to try to stop the market from dropping. And now they're doing this, and everybody's saying, wait a minute, is there something going on in China that they're not telling us, too? So yeah. it's a big mystery. Well, and then we, we, but that, it's we won't huge know. in world markets. Right. So, so, so we, we won't know that until it happens. It's not like we're, you know, on great terms with, with the Chinese. So, so, you right. know, they, they said that the, <clears throat> the, the, um, the free fall, if you will, because I, I, again, I've got nothing in the stock market, so it's not really something I check every day. But uh, we had a couple of bad days, and yesterday it sort of yeah. um, slowed down. Oh, a yesterday bit. it went way down, and then it and went then back, it came up. back up again. So it closed about even, but it went down, I think, 220 at one point. Yeah. Today it's not so bad either. So people are kind of used to the shock of it, but the first day it, first day it went down 200 something as well. So. Wow. So, and, uh, and more yeah. can happen. I know um, that Tom Hartman, uh, or some guest he has on his show regularly, has been predicting another crash, and that you know that it may emanate from China. This could be it. You know, the, everything is so precarious uh, that that uh, you know there are there are things that are beyond our control. Uh, obviously, uh, the the world is not so uh, U.S. centric anymore, is it? Well. Yes or no, right, 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 right. Well, here's here's what I would say about that is that if you have something of actual value, that isn't going to change, you mm-hmm. see. But if you're following along with those people who have rigged the market and if you're playing a game of guessing how they're rigging it today and following that, uh, that's not going to work out so well for you when they change their minds. Like if you had bets that China's currency was going to be what it was because they've been manipulating it. Um, you you lost everything in the last three days, right. for example. Oh but if God. you own stock, for example, in a company that's doing okay, solid business, and that isn't going to be affected too much if China suddenly has a huge recession or depression, etc. You see, so things that have actual value always have actual value. Right, but you know, there's there's uh, such an interesting um, uh, dynamic with, with particularly with Chinese goods because you know we all yeah. uh, decry them. We all you know China made in China, all the shit you get at Walmart. Um, you know, uh, and I you know that uh, I adopted my daughter from Kazakhstan back in it was 2000, the end of 2000, and one of the the traditions is you bring gifts for all the people that you encounter. Um, from the mm-hmm. orphanage workers to the the records people to the people at the courthouse, everybody you deal with, you give a gift. But we were warned: only bring things made in America. If you bring something that's made in China, they take it as an insult. Ooh, well, yeah, an insult. Yeah, well, well you got to learn these things. Yeah, and I, yeah, where was this? Kazakhstan. This is right oh, yeah. next door well, to China. They see China. They see China as a competitor. Yeah. Well, they're also they're uh, right you, next you, door, and they can get cheap shit. Look, I went shopping in their the green, what's called the green market, big outdoor market, mm-hmm. and you can get Chinese goods for nothing. You know that because they right. got it. It's flooded right. the market. They don't want cheap Chinese shit. They want the good American stuff. Right. Yep. Yep. So, and anyway. they don't want the the cheap shit that's that's killing their job market too. Right. This part right, of it. You exactly. know, it's like if you, in the 80s, if you drove around Detroit in a Japanese car, you know, you risked getting a rock thrown at you. Right. 
Uh, so People got kind of used to it, but... <laughs> yeah, I guess <laughs> they did. So we want one last thing, Dave Johnson, before I let you go. Um, there is news um, on the Trans-Pacific Partnership where the last meetings, negotiating meetings, which at which they were supposed to arrive at some kind of a consensus, uh, went by without a consensus yet again. This thing could yet... It looks like they're never going to come to agreement on it, doesn't it? Or well, here, is that what you're happened. thinking? Yeah. yeah, here's what happened is they were trying to get it done by the end of July because the, the timeline spelled out by the fast track that passed uh, meant that if they could get it done, by the if they could officially say the president was going to sign it, that started a clock, and that clock meant that they could vote on it in the U.S. before the end of the year. And that was what they were They were pushing for that, and they didn't get it. Uh, some really interesting reasons they didn't get it, for, and I'll get into that if we have time. But they didn't get it. Then they're trying again, but but there, it doesn't look like they're going to get it done in the next few weeks, which means that it will not come up to our House and Senate until next year, early next year maybe. But next year, with the Iowa caucuses and New Hampshire coming up, that changes the entire dynamic, and they were trying to avoid that because they're trying to keep it out of the press. Right. Now, quick question, though, um, Dave Johnson at DC Johnson on the Twitters. Um, I know that, um, well, for instance, Hillary Clinton, uh, well, sort of told us, kind of, sort of, um, what she thinks about the... Um, uh, the the trans not no not uh, about the Keystone XL pipeline in that she said well I'll tell you after I'm elected um, yeah. she, right that was her answer on that one how about um, where she stands on the Trans Pacific Partnership has she answered that question yet she has said both sides of it in some ways but she's in a book said she's against this part of it that lets corporations sue countries. But she's also said she will say her position once it's done and signed. So oh, she's, gee. she's not saying she'll dodge it till she's elected. She's saying she'll tell us what she thinks when they get it ready and before there's a vote in the Congress. And that's at least that's pretty good. But she really dodged it on fast track because fast track kind of makes it happen. That's right. I was going to, if you have a minute, can oh. I explain one thing? Yes. All right. Uh, her thing about corporations suing governments, well, that's one of the things, by the way, that's holding up the Trans-Pacific Partnership Good. in that it is so bad that it allows tobacco companies to sue a government for things like educating their kids about the dangers of smoking because that hurts their profits. Right. That's how bad this is. Well, and so. Well, and, and can I, well, I'm going to let you finish, Dave, but something I read yesterday, and I'm trying to find it. It's your Tra- show. Yeah, okay. Well, there's that. TransCanada, <laughs> the, the company behind the Keystone XL pipeline, is is planning for the 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 um that that for the eventuality that the Keystone XL pipeline will not be approved and is making plans to sue the US government under exactly. these is trade this, deals. Yes. This reveals what these things are about that that any company can sue a government for any regulation 
that might cost it profits. Right. For, for potential and lost revenue. Mean, what, what if you require them to put up a, an arm thing so you, if you're on an operating machine that cuts something, your arm might not go in it and cut your arm off? Uh, uh, well, um, that costs them profits. Right, right. That'll cost them profits. Well, it's so bad that tobacco companies are suing governments under clauses like this for for educating their kids that smoking is harmful, for Amazing. helping citizens quit smoking. They're suing governments. And so some people trying to get TPP done are saying, look, let's, let's write tobacco companies out of this because that really looks bad and it kind of, they might get publicity that'll wake people up to the other stuff. Yeah, thanks. Just lets them do. Oh, my God. So let's get tobacco out. Yeah. And that's what's holding it up, because the tobacco companies are saying, no, why us? Why single us out as a company that does bad shit from all the other companies that do bad stuff? Fracking, I don't know. Uh, one company sued Germany when they cut back on using nuclear power because of the dangers. Yeah. So that's one of the things holding it up, is they're afraid that tobacco is so bad that the public might wake up. Yeah. And the tobacco companies are fighting that. Oh, my God. So that's, how, that's since you asked about TPP not making it through, that was one of the reasons. Yeah. Yeah, and and it is. I mean, it's it's really fucked up. And and again, this yeah. article yesterday says, you know, uh, uh, just to reiterate, Trans Canada is preparing for the eventuality that the Keystone XL pipeline will not be approved. So they're readying plans to sue the uh, right. United States under CAFTA because for right. for potential lost revenue. This shit is happening, right. and this is what will open us up to all of the the nations involved even in the Trans Pacific yeah, Partnership. More. Yeah, that's uh, right. That, exactly. That we decide we don't want to let a Canadian oil company seize U.S. land to build a pipeline through the Gulf so they can sell oil to China and they can sue us for stopping them. Right. Right. And then, of course, you got uh, Hillary Clinton yep. when asked about the Keystone XL pipeline saying when I become president, I will answer your question. Yeah. I, I don't oh, think that's. Geez. Yeah. Right. Right. Dave Johnson of the Campaign for America's Future, blogging at OurFuture.org and tweeting on the Twitters at D.C. Johnson. And with that, you can stick a fork in this edition of the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com. Always my pleasure to fill in for Brad and Desi. Uh, I hope you'll check out my program over at RadioOrNot.com. Brad and Desi will be back on Monday. In the meantime, have a wonderful weekend and have a bite of that Social Security birthday cake on me.